Boop, boop, Graham. Wow. I have no words for that particular... I've been saving that one for for episode five. I think it needed some longer saving. (laughs) Needed to accrue some interest. That was a howler monkey. Wow. Have you actually heard of howler monkey in real life? Yeah, I think at a zoo. I've heard it in, you know, because my research takes me to the jungle Mm -hmm. a fair amount. And if you've ever... Jungle research. Yeah, that's how cool I am. If you've ever woken up in the middle of the jungle mm-hmm. um, by the sounds of howler monkeys, it is terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's such an unusual, inhuman noise. It's like a, a dragon has descended upon the treetops. So how did it compare to, to my rendition? Not even close. Not even close. No. Okay, maybe it wasn't a howler monkey I was listening to. Then. Yeah, yeah, possibly not. So the way um, a troop of howler monkey sounds mm-hmm. in the forest... It's a, a low grumble, like that, you know? In fact, some people have described it as the, what a Sasquatch probably sounds like. Right. Which is a throwback to episode four. Our melancholy Sasquatch. Melancholy Sasquatch. Today, Graham, we want to respond yes, to want. a Facebook comment. We actually have Facebook commenters now. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, plural, too. We can start using the plural. <laughs> commenters, as Listeners correct. Listeners and commenters. And once again, I've forgotten to introduce ourselves. Mm. So I'm here with Dr. Graham Sanders, who is the nominal lay person in our conversation. And uh, he is a professor of medieval Chinese poetry at the University of Toronto. And I'm here with Raywat Dunandan, professor of epidemiology. That's always a mouthful. At the uh, University of Ottawa. Nominal scientist. <laughs> nominal scientist. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> you, you don't actually go into a lab or anything, right? So. Well, we have what's called dry labs. So uh, the layperson sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> shut up. The, the layperson needs to understand there's a difference between wet labs and dry labs. Wet labs is what you see on TV with people in lab coats and clipboards mm-hmm. running experiments on benches with you know test tubes and drippy things. Mm-hmm. And uh, dry labs are what. Most people do. It's not quite as sexy, but it actually has, in my opinion, a more immediate impacts on policy and society. And that's just, you know, with computers and calculators. But we're all basically spending our lives on computers, whether we're in the humanities or in the dry sciences. Or in the pornographic industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. We have a Facebook comment question from Rashi, and Rashi wanted us to talk about some of the um, the challenges in navigating the evidence around dieting mm. and also exercise. And those are two huge topics. The thing is that neither one of us are experts on either nutrition or exercise. You and can tell by looking at I was me. going to say, <laughs> if this were a visual podcast, you would know that right away. But oh. what we are are clever boys. Maybe. Excuse me, I'm have some back trouble i have to readjust myself here okay graham has a back trouble because he has a poor diet and poor Mm -hmm. exercise poor exercise well actually exercise led to my back trouble but look at that so graham are you any on any particular diets right now just food so you're gluten-free aren't you oh yeah no i wouldn't say gluten-free i avoid it a really good bagel in new york i just ate it so it didn't kill me but uh, Uh, gluten's always free yeah and um, I, I avoid it. But it makes you me know, feel crappy. most people choose to be gluten free because of either the, of celiac issues or perhaps a, a, an allergy that's been diagnosed for gluten. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, I, I avoid gluten as well, and I have no allergies. Mm-hmm. And you know, I fell prey to all of the uh, the commentary and the gossip online around perhaps gluten leads us to our wheat belly, or, right. you know, grain brain. Mm-hmm. These are the uh, the buzzwords that are mm-hmm. common now. Inflammation of all sorts. Precisely. Yeah. And you know what? Part of me thinks that's real. 
Mm-hmm. You know, my, my scientist brain tells me there's a lot of pretty good evidence around that. However, I'm not prepared to say definitively and conclusively that that's the truth. Mm-hmm. Because, again, I'm not a nutritionist and neither are you. But um, what I want to talk about instead today, um, which maybe will not satisfy Rashi's question, right. but what are the challenges in navigating the dietary literature? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that comes to Aside mind... Aside from it all being contradictory. And if you were to actually Google evidence-based dieting mm-hmm. or the evidence or science around nutrition, oh my God, mm-hmm. there are literally tens of thousands of hits and websites with the name evidence-based diet and evidence-based nutrition, and very few of them actually are. Mm-hmm. One of my um, favorite uh, guys online is Dr. Ben Goldacre. Have you heard of him? No. He's an epidemiologist physician in England, and he's made an entire career out of trying to inject more sound science Mm -hmm. into how we think about things. And he has a website called Bad Science, and he has actually uh, several strong posts around the bad science around nutrition. Was he the one that was rebutting chemistry woman? Chemistry woman? What was that woman's name? No. Uh, The one who was just said... When it was all out against chemicals, and oh, of course everything's a chemical. So, oh, possibly him. I don't know. Uh, anyway, I attention. Should have done my research. Well, there's no re- what research is there to be had? A couple of dorks with a microphone. It's more research than a lot of the diet experts <laughs> are doing. But um, uh, I mean, on the website, I'll add a link to a couple of the articles by Dr. Ben Goldacre, and he really has it in for these media type nutritionists who right. go on and on about um, poor science around dieting. And there's another website. Thing called PSYCOP, C-S-I-C-O-P, which is the Center for Skeptical Inquiry. And they have an entire uh, list of things that are wrong with how we think about dieting as well. In fact, they have a document called The Methodological and Statistical Issues in Adult Nutritional Research that point out mm-hmm. that much of what we think are causal associations between various nutritional components and positive or negative health outcomes mm-hmm. are not causal. Right. Right? A lot of them are associations, and we have talked about associations previously on this podcast. So just because eating, I don't know, drinking a cup of coffee a day lowers my risk of colon cancer, it doesn't mean that it's coffee necessarily that was the mechanism and the pathway that mm-hmm. prevented the colon cancer. Right, right. right. So a lot of what we think we know about nutritional sciences comes along that. It's associative. It's, yes. not, um, it's not causal. As a... A layperson, if if the study is not able to cite a mechanism, I actually kind of discount it because if it's just all so. But I, I understand ninety percent of it probably is just right. based on associations and correlations. But if they can't say, well, that because of this molecule in the food, it does this to this molecule in your body, and mm-hmm. actually lay it out for me, then I'm I'm suspect. No, that's interesting. I mean, yeah. we should have a conversation someday around what is it that is most compelling around a study, what is the most convincing for the layperson. Is it the fact there's a strong statistical effect mm-hmm. or is it that there is a mechanism that makes sense right. to you? I mean, for vitamins, they can demonstrate mechanisms often. Sure. So that's why. But when they say drinking coffee leads to this or doesn't that mean, tell me why. Uh, they have theories, but... Every time someone says, tell me why, I think of that um, Vronsky beat song from the 80s. <laughs> tell me why. <laughs> I think of the, the uh, Bob Geldof one, the Boomtown Rats. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. You're so cooler than me now. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm embarrassed that my references. I, I think and we both just a... sang. <laughs> our apologies to our listeners. I think we lost all our listeners except <laughs> that's right. Yeah, just plummeted. Except Bob Geldof, who clearly is a fan of the show. Okay, so what's our goal here? <laughs> our goal here is um, to talk about again some of the challenges with understanding nutritional sciences. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> if I were to ask you, mm-hmm. when you read a label of a, a vitamin, let's say, right. or something, and it says recommended daily allowance. Mm-hmm. How do you think, or do you even think, about how that recommended daily allowance was computed? No, I don't. I just assume that there's some basis for it, and I actually pay attention to it. So if it looks like it's not going to get 50% of my RDA for sodium and something, then maybe I'm not going to eat it. Although I have low blood pressure naturally, maybe I don't. Maybe my RDA is different from other people's. I have high blood pressure naturally, so between us, we mm-hmm. even out to being a healthy person. Right. <laughs> Not mentally. So, see, that's that's how population health sciences work. On average, we're a healthy person, so we don't need any interventions. Um, so, tell me, how well, do they? No, I want you to actually uh, figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. So, okay. let's say you are inventing the are science with, of nutrition. Are they doing it with human beings? Can I ask that? Or you can posit any scenario you wish. Okay. And are we talking about vitamins? Sure. Let's say it's vitamins. Okay. So, vi- let's take vitamin C. Sure. So I would probably have someone who has a normal amount of vitamin C in their body, and then I'd start... What's a normal amount? I'd just take someone from a regular environment. Like, okay. not, I wouldn't know. I mean, just someone who's not doing anything particularly strange in either way. Then I would eliminate vitamin C from their diet. And how would that... And in increments, I suppose, until I discovered their gums started bleeding or something that I've linked to lack of vitamin C started to show itself. And then, then I'd know, okay, that's the minimum amount you need. Going the other way is a little bit more difficult because you'd have to start giving them more and more and more until what happens? Their liver fails or I mean, vitamin C, you excrete it, so I don't think anything would happen. I would, until some adverse effect happened at the top end, and then I'd say that's... You're absolutely right. And that's historically what was the original approaches to computing uh, RDAs. You deprive someone of the thing that we're talking about right. until some manifestation of sickness mm-hmm. presents itself, or you increase the dose until either excretion begins oh, okay. either through sweating or you know so you don't have to wait something. until something bad happens so. or until something bad happens <laughs> so again it, you start to realize very ethical <laughs> it isn't so you start to realize that what we define as a healthy range mm-hmm. depends on your definition and people have different are. tolerances too right? exactly so. so in other words this is not a precise science no, not at all and I looked up um, some of the... I don't mean to disrespect nutritional sciences. They're actually a fairly robust set of practices, and they spend a lot of time trying to figure out what it is that makes us healthy. Mm-hmm. So I'm not dismissing that at all. I'm just saying, historically, this is a challenge. And the layperson never quite think about, thinks about the problems in how we define some of these concepts. They just say, what's healthy for me to take, this right. or that? Right, So there are all kinds of ways of actually measuring or even conceptualizing RDA. There's something called the Estimated Average Requirement, the EAR, Mm -hmm. and that's um, the amount that's expected to satisfy the needs of 50% of the people in that particular age group. Mm -hmm. So suddenly we move from an individual model to a population model. Because labels don't break down by sex or age group. Or... They do by age group very often, for children versus adults. Oh, you're talking about vitamins, nutritional supplements. Pretty much everything has yeah. children versus adults. You know, mm-hmm. The thing is, what's a child? Technically, it's someone five years of age or younger. Right. But again, there comes a stage where you're dumbing things down for the layperson right. so much that you're missing nuance. But when you pick up food labels, they don't... That's right. You know, I mean, yeah. if they say you recommend a daily intake of this, they don't break mm-hmm. it down by age. And you know something is imprecise when the RDAs vary from country to country. Right. So the human animal doesn't vary, but mm-hmm. cultural practices and, and beliefs and values do. 
So there's something called the AI, that's the adequate intake, and that's when no official RDA has been established. It's the amount that's more or less believed to be adequate. What is that based on? I guess expert opinion. There's something called the tolerable upper intake level, which is the UL. That's the highest level of daily consumption that is considered to be safe. And usually they have like cutoffs of 97.5%. So if 97.5% of people mm-hmm. can tolerate this level, then we say it's safe. If you're right. in that 2.5%, screw you. Yeah. <laughs> then there's something called the acceptable macronutrient distribution range, the AMDR. And that's a range of intake specific for energy usage. So Obviously, there's a variety of ways of computing all of this. It pays to be average, then. It pays you, to you, be don't, average. you do not want to be exceptional when it comes to these guidelines. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, and one day we'll have a discussion around the bell curve. Mm-hmm. You know, the bell curve, that statistical construct right. that pretty much we think describes every human attribute and experience. The thing is, though, you can be under the majority for one characteristic right. and be exceptional in another characteristic, and everybody is. That's why these nutritional sciences don't necessarily describe the fullness of your body in for all categories. Now, do you think your doctor is well-equipped to make these determinations for you? Uh, actually, I don't expect nutritional information from my doctor uh, holistically. I expect it targeted to certain problems, like if I have high cholesterol, then I expect my doctor to say, avoid this or... Maybe eat more of that, but overall, no, I don't expect. What if you, you know, when your doctor and say, "Doc, you know, I'm thinking of going vegetarian," mm-hmm. and for ethical reasons, let's say, um, what do you think? Is that healthy or not? Would you expect your daughter to daughter your doctor to be well equipped to? Yes, I would like them to be. I don't think they are because I doubt that nutrition is a big topic in medical school. I don't know why I say that. But you <laughs> said it because I, I sent you some papers before this podcast. No, that's true. I just don't have that feeling, but it is. So when, when doing research into this, I, um, I looked up how well-prepared doctors in North America feel. So there's one paper called, What Do Resident Physicians Know About Nutrition? An Evaluation of Attitude, Self-Perceived Proficiency, and Knowledge in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition. And again, uh, links to these papers will be available on the website, sciencemonkey.ca. And uh, they conclude that internal medicine uh, interns perceive that nutrition is a priority or knowledge of nutrition, but they don't have the confidence to effectively educate their patients. Mm-hmm. That's kind of consuming, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? If our own, do- by the way, these aren't medical students, these are residents. 94% agreed that it was their obligation to discuss nutrition, but only 14% felt physicians were adequately trained. So that's a that's a perception. One could argue that perhaps at this stage of their education, residents don't feel confident about a whole lot. Right. Doesn't mean that they're not capable. But if you look at some other studies, so there's one called uh, Nutritional Education in the U.S. Medical Schools, latest update of a national survey. And they conclude the amount of nutrition education that medical students receive in the U.S. continues to be inadequate. Are they measuring them just hours in the classroom or something? Yes, exactly. And there's another uh, paper here called Status of Nutrition Education in Medical Schools. Uh, that was in 2008. Mm-hmm. And they conclude that the, the amount of nutrition education is inadequate. Well, um, what if one of the problems is not, oh, we just need to talk more about nutrition and that'll fix that problem. But <clears throat> we don't know what to tell them and that's why we're not telling them anything. Right. That's a good point. So um, we assume that in in medical schools, there is a nutrition class Mm -hmm. and there doesn't appear to be in a lot of cases. I think the recommendation is there should be 24 hours of instruction on nutrition, whether that occurs clinically or in the context of other classes. But there's no dedicated class um, that talks about the science 
of acquiring the knowledge around nutrition. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is simply memorizing. Here are the RDAs that the government has computed are required for these kinds of uh, individuals, but no investigation or interrogation of how that knowledge came about. And nutrition is separate from diets with the popular use of diet, not meaning just what you eat, but an actual restricted regimen, which seems always silly to me because are you supposed to eat that restricted regimen for the rest of your life? If not, and even if you do eat it for the rest of your life, your metabolism is going to adjust itself anyway. But if, if not, it's a temporary measure and you go back to eating the way you were eating before, then what mm-hmm. effect are you going to have? It, it doesn't make any sense well, to me. I mean, so the whole idea of going on a diet seems silly. It should be you should adjust your eating patterns yes. in a certain way to eat healthily. I think we're in a new paradigm now where most professionals don't like using the phrase go on a diet. Yeah. I mean, it's this is your behavior for the rest of your life. Right, yeah. right? It's your eating behavior. Exactly. And a lot of the stuff is, is cultural and economic, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the point of uh, prescribing someone quinoa, right. or, you know, when they can't afford they can't quinoa? Afford, or it's not available. Yeah. Yeah, available. Let me ask you something then. What do you think of the the, the Canada Food Guide or the Food Pyramid? <laughs> I haven't looked at it in a long, long time. <laughs> I think we saw it in school or something like that. Do you know what, what's in it? Well, I used to, I remember the head of the base was a bunch of bread. Yeah. Right? A bunch of grains. Um, I'm looking it up now. So if you're typing in the background, that's me typing on the computer here. And uh, it's our auto-education happening as you listen. <laughs> Moving up to vegetables and so forth, and then meats, and then sugars and so forth at the top. And there's a lot of controversy about whether carbohydrates are should be your main source of calories or not. Or the types of carbohydrates. I don't think they made much of a distinction. So the, the the bottom of the pyramid is breads and cereals and you know starches. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next level up is fruits and vegetables. Great. Up from that is milk, yogurts, and cheese. Up mm-hmm. from that is red meat, mm-hmm. poultry, and fish. And up from that are cakes, biscuits, chocolates, and sweets. The way this works, of course, if if people aren't knowledgeable about the food pyramid, is you want you most of your sh- diet based upon the is shaped. <laughs> it gets smaller are, as you go up. Well, I bring this up because the the pyramid of evidence, which uh-huh. I hope we'll talk about in a future uh-huh. episode is ranking the quality. So the very top is the highest quality evidence, uh-huh. whereas in food pyramid, that's not the case. It's the bottom that is the, the food that we should rely upon the most, and the top is the food. I, well, it's a rough guide of quantity. Right? In your yes. diet, you should have most of your calories coming from breads and grains, which I think maybe is not the best thing. But... Right. So um, I'm not going to say outright on the show whether or not it's rational, right. because that's... Uh, I'm an epidemiologist, I'm not a nutritionist. Mm. However, I, I do really think that a lot of these pyramids and guides are informed by corporate lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And I question whether or not it's evidence-based as a result. Mm-hmm. How much does the bread, lo- the wheat lobby, right, or yeah. the, the milk lobby, dairy lobby... Or the meat. The meat lobby, okay, exactly. Especially if you could take meat out of your diet. And, right. And it'd be f- perfectly fine. <laughs> Wasn't that great, that great line? It's... Um, Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Mostly, mostly vegetables, yeah. Or mostly yeah. plants, yeah. yeah that's that's uh, Palan, Michael Palan, the omnivore's dilemma. There it is, yeah. That seems to make sense. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We have a segment called, it used to be called, Is This Still a Thing? Right. And what are we going to call it now? Oh, the Celestial Emporium of Benevolent Knowledge. Right. And what what this segment is supposed to be about is we talk about... Oh, the reason it's called that yes, uh, is uh, Borges, the, I wanted to say Colombian, Argentine. Is it Chilean? Chilean. Oh, this is terrible. Is he Chilean? Go back and make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> South American <laughs> writer. Argentinian. Argentinian, that's right. Uh, my second guess. The Argentinian writer 
once uh, imagined a Chinese encyclopedia, which he gave it a fanciful sort of orientalist title of the Celestial Emporium of Benevolent Knowledge. Since we have a kind of East Asian or South Asian or Asian sources for the, what we cite in this segment, so I thought it would make a good name. And we could have some sufficiently orientalist music. To Let's go. pretend we have some right now. Okay. Theme music starts now. And we'll talk about theme music. Either a sitar or something. All right, so, um, okay, so I guess the music's okay. over now. For this segment, uh, I, I thought about what do ancient cultures think about dietary restrictions or nutritional philosophies? And I looked up Ayurvedic medicine. So Ayurveda, for those not in the know, is the ancient Indian medical system. And Ayurveda recognizes three different types of life forces and therefore three body types. And those three life forces are pitta, vata, and kapha. I like pitta. <laughs> and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing the Sanskrit words here. But I'm looking at a website right now that talks about what these three body types supposedly indicate for nutritional content. So the pitta body type is strong-willed and determined, and people recommend that they eat more cooling foods, such right. as fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. The vata body type are never found standing still, and they crave warmth. So things like ginger, garlic, and onion are good for them. Mm -hmm. And the kapha body type has a strong constitution, and they're characterized by heaviness. So they should avoid excessive protein and stick to lighter products like tofu and chicken. I don't know if that's evidence-based at all, right. but Ayurvedic medicine has a long history of actually being effective in many cases. So it's possible to surround your medical system with strange philosophies and mythologies and yet still find effectiveness. But it's not about weight loss either, though. It's, no. it's about energy levels, probably. It's about living healthily. Living, healthfully. Because yeah. the, the Chinese traditional medicine has similar ideas of of qi, huo qi, or fiery qi, and lung qi, cold qi, and balancing them through diet in your body. Because when you're out of balance, then you start, your body starts malfunctioning and producing disease, right? But it's, it's a completely different goal. The goal is harmony in your body rather than weight loss, which seems to be the number one right. uh, sort of goal of Western diets, is, obe is combating obesity. So maybe we're looking at the wrong, at the wrong outcome. Well, I think you and I are kind of in a, a privileged position. We're actually healthy guys mm -hmm. that are you know fairly fit, despite the fact that we we hide behind the microphone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's easy for us to say our goal should be healthfulness mm -hmm. rather than weight loss. Mm -hmm. But you know, we we are in the midst of a global obesity pandemic, right. and part of the the challenge for epidemiologists and population scientists is understanding why is there this pandemic of obesity. Right. I mean, you've heard the theories, right? Like, well, there's, there's also lack of exercise too, right? Which sure. comes into it. But can I tell you as, as a lay person, my model for healthy eating? Okay. Let's see, see whether this... <laughs> By the way, we're having pie as yeah, we're right. this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have some uh, whiskey later. But yeah. <laughs> both good nutritional sources, pie and whiskey. <laughs> and see, this comports with, with your scientific knowledge as an epidemiologist. Although I guess you're not a nutritionist, so... Can't say that enough times. Uh, yeah. I'm not a nutritionist. <laughs> so it's all about, for me, it's all about sugar levels in your blood, right? And so I think someone once used the metaphor that of like a gas tank. So you fill up your gas tank with only so much gas, and your body uses that right, and, and as fuel. And then when it depletes itself, you fill it up again. But if you overfill it, if you put too much sugar in your bloodstream, your body cannot use that. And so it has to store it. It has to do something with it. So it starts producing insulin. It starts producing fat. And so the goal is just not to eat foods which inject sugar into our bloodstream very quickly, which are sugars and carbohydrates and um, you know, 
simple carbohydrates and eat foods which break take longer to break down and go into your blood, bloodstream. Yeah, I mean, that sounds reasonable, and that's what we, m- most of us believe. However, we have instances, for example, the Japanese diet historically is starch-heavy. Right. And yet they also have the lowest rates of obesity in the world, among the lowest rates. So we have these examples that contradict that common sense approach. So it turns they don't eat out, large portions, though. Right? Well, that's a good point. It, it's, it's possible that some kinds of sugary intake have different hormonal effects than other kinds of sugary intake. Right. For example, it's my understanding that fructose, which is the kind of sugar we get from fruits, has a different effect on the way we metabolize energy than glucose does. And that's what's used as a sweetener in a lot of foods. High fructose corn syrup, who was invented by a monster right. sometime yeah. this century. Yeah. We have a lot of our candies now have natural sugars removed and high fructose corn syrup injected because it's cheaper. Right. But something that's high in fructose will, may result in something called ATP trapping, mm-hmm. where some ATP is adenosine triphosphate. That's how our body manages energy. Right. So all the food we intake is through a process of respiration converted into these packets of energy called ATP. That's why we eat to produce ATP, essentially. With fructose intake, my reading suggests, uh, ATP trapping occurs, and what that means is the body is unable to acknowledge the fact that we have created ATP, I so see. it remains hungry for right. more energy. Ah. It doesn't feel like it's been fed, right. as opposed to glucose intake that has a natural ATP experience. Huh. While it's so true... It's sort of like the monitoring system of our body yeah. is off. Right? And that's just one example of how what we eat may in fact change how we behave in terms of future eating mm-hmm. and how we feel. And there's a, a kind of response called hormesis. So hormesis is like a J-shaped response curve. I ate, eat some of this thing, the hormetic response is positive, and then it gets to the point where it stops being, starts being negative again. Mm-hmm. So we're learning more and more about hormetic responses to foods, and that's really uh, revolutionizing how we think about the intake right. of various things. You know, uh, I'm fascinated by, by brown fat, for example. You familiar with brown fat no. and white fat? So we have good fat and bad fat in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Brown fat is more dense with mitochondria. Right. Mitochondria are portions of our cells that are responsible for energy production. Mm-hmm. So athletes, we think, are more likely to have brown fat than white fat. If you grow up in a, a cold weather climate, as we do in, in, in Canada, we would tend to lay down more brown fat because it produces more energy. I see. And we think that that might be why if you are from a warmer climate and you come to Toronto in the winter mm-hmm. and you're wearing the same thing that we are and you feel colder, right. you may look at these guys and think, what's wrong with you? Why, why are you cold? Mm-hmm. It's because their fat is actually different. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, that, and is brown fat uh, more easily converted into energy and easier to lose? I believe so. I believe so because it's actually it's burning more calories. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, I'm not an expert in this. This is right. entirely based upon my reading. My point I'm trying to make, though, is that it appears simple energy in, energy out. Mm-hmm. But the mechanism, what happens when it's in the black box, right. you know, it's actually more complicated than we thought. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, people's metabolisms very widely. So, uh, in terms of how quickly energy can be burned, uh, seems to vary from person to person. Yes. And I heard it can even be passed down through epigenetics. So that people, I think it was a study that I saw cited in the Atlantic, I'll look it up, we can link it in which they studied a group of people who had grown up in uh, circumstances of intense food deprivation. Uh, I think it was in Holland during the war or something, when people were eating like uh, tulip bulbs and stuff. And the next generation, even though they didn't have a lack of food, their metabolisms were still as, as low and as slow as the previous generation. 
and then somehow that was inherited. So they they put on a ton of weight, hmm. uh, and it's an argument for perhaps what's happening in the South and the U.S. through the Depression era when a lot of people didn't have enough to eat, their metabolism slowed down, and then when they moved from that into an era of plenty, the metabolisms being reset at a lower level were passed on to the children. They encountered more food and ate it and, and put on a lot of weight. So. We are learning so much more about this complicated universe. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm I'm not quick to speak authoritative about anything anymore because I might be wrong tomorrow. Right. You know, so let's let's finish off today with okay. a few trivia questions. Sure. So this segment we used to call "Did You Know?" We've na- renamed the Facts and the Furious. The facts and the Furious. Yeah. So let's add our theme music now. Theme music starting now and da, 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 theme music. car chase. Well, we already have our theme. Oh music, yeah, we do. So we're not rich enough to buy new theme music. <laughs> Come on, you can shell out for some. <laughs> so let me give you uh, three questions here. All right. These are fairly, fairly basic questions that maybe a lot poor, of... Our, poor Rashi. I don't think we, we answered. I think she got a lot for what she paid for this <laughs> <That's> podcast. <laughs> well, let's go back to the Michael Pollan, right? <laughs> what was it again? Uh, eat, food, eat food, not too much, not too much mostly, mostly plants. vegetables, mostly plants. <laughs> Where are the three smallest bones in the human body? I'm going to say the ear. You'd be correct, my friend. Yeah, Look I knew that one. Oh, okay, so there are the, you know what they are? The tympum, the tannum, and the pantorium. <laughs> The theremin. <laughs> think, weren't those plays by Orpheus? No? They're the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. Yeah, that's going to be my next guest. Right. The hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. Ah. For the inner ear. Okay, good for you. That's great. Next question. Who has more hair follicles? I do. Oh, okay. Uh, um, blondes, brunettes, or redheads? <laughs> really? Yeah. Male, female, doesn't matter? I don't think it matters. Okay. Well, I mean, comparing within each gender. So now I'm just like thinking... When I see, I'm going to say brunettes because they always seem to have thicker hair than blonde or red hair people. But. Actually, blondes have more hair follicles. Uh, I'm assuming on their heads. Well, you know, per square centimeter. Huh. Not centimeter. 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 Okay, last question, which is relevant. Well, you'll see why it's relevant. Okay. Name a country in the Western Hemisphere named after an what, element. Why do blondes need more hair? I know they have more fun. Anything I say will be offensive. <laughs> So I'm going to censor myself. Maybe to keep themselves warmer because their hair is lighter and doesn't absorb the radiation from the sun as well. Well, why does blonde hair exist in the first place? It's a, it's a lack of something. Sure. Yeah. I mean, your body produces pigment because it needs it. If it doesn't need it, then it doesn't produce it. What's the competitive advantage of... of... Competitive? Well, I think it's just... The way evolution works, I thought, was an organism will only expend as much energy as it needs, right? So if, if it doesn't need to produce brown hair and dark skin, then why bother? So it must be somehow less energy required to have light hair and light skin in northern climates because you don't need the protection from the sun. So it's not so much a competitive advantage. It's just sort of like you don't need it, so it's not mm. there. But. Okay. All right. Anyway, I'll think about that. Okay. So, final question. You're looking very skeptical. Well, I hadn't really thought about it before. And, and, uh, like, in other words, not everything is an active evolutionary sure, advantage. Some of our traits are just there because I understand. we had an advantage that right. we didn't need it anymore. So but it when dark skinned people migrated from, from Africa to Europe, something selected against the dark skin. No, see, that's my point. Is they didn't need the dark skin any longer. So right. the default is you don't produce that pigment. That's not how it works. So right. let's say you start producing some light skinned people and, right. and you still have dark skinned people around. Right. Why were the dark skinned people selected against? Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. And the darker hair is selected against. Mm-hmm. I'm sure someone will write to us 
on our website, sizemonkey.ca. That's the beginning of racism. <laughs> right there. Okay, final question. Okay. Name a country in the Western Hemisphere named after an element. Is there such a thing? There is such they a thing. They named a country after an element? Yeah. Argentinium. You are, Argentina. You yes. are correct, sir. Yes. Look at you. Well done. And it's relevant because Borges is from Argentina. Right, yeah. Nice, nice time. Yeah. That's all we, we have. We didn't even plan that one. That's, that's good. <laughs> that's all we have for today, gentle reader. So until next time, this is uh, Monkey Ray and... Monkey Graham. Boop, boop. <laughs>